0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 91 of the Health Unchained Podcast. Have you heard of Web3 yet? If you're a listener to the podcast, I can almost guarantee you've at least heard of Web3. At a high level, Web3 is the next major evolution of the Internet. It allows for value to be exchanged peer-to-peer in tokenized communities and ecosystems via digital signatures and smart contracts. There is a whole developer community that has sprung up in the last five to six years focused on applications using smart contracts on blockchain protocols that support things you've probably heard of, like NFTs and DAOs, or non-fungible tokens and decentralized autonomous organizations. Out of the 27 million software developers worldwide, only 20,000 of them are Web3 developers. Recently, I actually participated in a virtual NFT hackathon hosted by ETH Global, where our team won prizes for building a prototype for a NFT-gated video live-streaming platform in a single weekend. Shout out to Livepeer, NFT Port, and Unlock for the sponsorship awards. The ETH Global team is hosting another hackathon focused on Web3 on February 3rd through the 8th. So hurry up and apply before the deadline if you want to learn more about Web3 quickly. These hackathons are even great for people that are still new to the blockchain and Web3 world. I added a link to the event in the show notes. For you. Now, in today's discussion, Chris Wirt, CEO of Virida, talks about the developer tools needed to bridge Web 2 developers and programmers to the Web 3 world. We also talk about the challenges and opportunities he has as a Web 3 startup. And living in Australia, Chris also shared his perspective of how Australia has been dealing with the COVID 19 pandemic, which I found pretty interesting. I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you find this episode intriguing, let us know by sharing the episode with your mates. Don't forget to follow Health Unchained on Twitter and join our Telegram community at t.me slash And remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Do your own research, please, and do diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogen, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for our trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show.
1: What is blockchain? Is, blockchain. Is, blockchain. is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now.
0: Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Chris Werr. He is the founder and CEO of Verida. Welcome to the show. Really glad to have you on. And if you can give the audience a little bit of a background about yourself, that would be amazing. And then we can get into the conversation.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So for me personally, I've I guess shown sure my age is a little bit, but I've been building software since I was a kid, and primarily in Web two for the last twenty years. Over that time, we've obviously seen a lot of change and a lot of growth in in some of the now I guess tech monopolies of Google and Apple and Facebook, etc. And so during that time, I guess I've worked on a range of different projects across different industries. So worked in developing search engines, soft trading software for stock. And about ten years ago, I actually started a company building uh, crm software for non-profit organizations and uh part of that company one of our remits was providing sensitive data managing sensitive data for individuals that have got probably more challenging lives than some of us so we dealt with really sensitive information like uh, domestic violence case notes or people that have gone through previous trauma and we developed software there that had to secure that data but also um, provide a really simple user experience for those people that were uh, providing those services to those individuals. After a couple of years, I realized there was a structural problem in terms of how that, uh, the technology was being applied and how it impacted on the service delivery. For example, perhaps Ray, I, if I went and spoke to you about something that was very sensitive and maybe a traumatic experience, and I told you that information, um, you would enter that into a computer and then you might go and refer me to somebody else. And then when I go to somebody else, I have to go and repeat that story. And then that happens again and again, and I repeat that trauma. And I realized that with, it doesn't matter how good the technology is, we have this structural kind of failing with a lot of our technology where, you know, we're entering information to these different systems and the individual kind of gets lost in that. And so for me personally, that was sort of a bit of a, a wake up call as someone who wants to use technology for, for greater good, but realized that there's some, some issues here. So. A few years ago, I sort of decided to to focus my attention and on that problem and how technology can help address those problems. But I'm um, doing it in a different sort of structural way. And I guess discovery process, obviously, blockchain, people owning their own financial assets, became quite clear that there's there's something in this sort of blockchain thing, and and there's a, a really interesting use case and trying to bring those two worlds together. So for me personally, that's been the impetus for for starting Verida, and and also obviously over the last few years as we've developed the technology and been thinking about some of those user experience issues and I guess formed some of the basis of our our roadmap and and where we see this emerging sort of web three self-sovereign world heading in the coming years.
0: Wow. That is so interesting. You mentioned domestic violence as a use case that there are so many parallels in mental health workflows and healthcare where the same sort of situation unfolds where you don't want to have a patient kind of relive their trauma talking to multiple individuals entering that data once again. I know that your company also is not specifically just in healthcare. So you are also trying to help other industries grow into Web3 as well. But before we get into all of that, let's try to talk, let the audience better understand Web3 and what that really means and compare it to Web2 a little bit. Uh, This way they're following along.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I guess at a uh, conceptual level. You could think of web two, actually you could go back to web one was really just the internet where you're just browsing, it's like you're not really engaging, page. very static. Yeah. I still remember those days of Ask Jeeves and Out of vista and you just search and then you'd read. And that was, good. it was very one way. Web two became more interactive where you could read and write and into the introduction of social media, content creators, people creating. But all of that new sort of tech was built on this foundation of Others owning your identity. You know, you've got a Facebook account or a Twitter account, and that's your identity in this Web 2 world. Those platforms own your data, so you enter your information, into that data, and you contribute or you write con- content. And even in healthcare, you you know provide your data to a healthcare system, and somebody else owns that data. Obviously, there's legal rights around that, but it's very difficult. It's very much a silo. And then the final piece of that puzzle is is the old saying: If um, you're not paying for it, you are the you're you are the product. the product. And we see that everywhere. Where in Web 2, really. These companies are all about getting user share because they can then leverage that data and profit from you in in some way. Now, that's not all bad. Without some sort of business model there, this technology, these tools that a lot of us use every day wouldn't exist. And where Web3 comes in, it's saying, hey, look, there's a better way. Let's go back to this world where people have their own uh, identity. They have their own data. And then the extension of that is that individuals can benefit and in some cases profit from their own information and from their own sort of digital footprint rather than the existing centralized monopolies. And so you can see that, I guess, in DeFi, the emergence of DeFi, which is a part of Web3 where people can take ownership of their own financial assets. They can control their own finances in this sort of emerging DeFi world. They can you know, access new products and services that are owned by the collective rather than by a single corporation or individual. And obviously, there's a, a that's a, a growing awareness of what that uh, unlocks both from an innovation perspective, but also from a um, personal ownership and control. And I think we're starting to see an evolution in Web three of starting in this sort of finance DeFi space. More recently, there's been a lot of hype and probably a bit of a bubble in the NFT space. But if, if you break that down, really, that's taking the same concept of only financial assets, but then taking it to any asset. And that's there's some some technical challenges there still, but that's where that's heading. And then where we see ourselves at Verida is taking that to the next level and saying, okay. How do we own our own data and what does that look like? You know, what is me owning all of my personal information? And then obviously, when you start to think about it like that, it's not so much one particular industry. It's more about me as an individual owning my data across all sectors of my life and this sort of new digital world that is being created. And so for us, our focus is really on enabling people in to build new Web3 products that can challenge those monopolies. And so obviously healthcare is one really exciting, interesting use case that we're already seeing some traction on.
0: And one thing in web three right now is there is a lack of developers in web three when you compare it to the web two world, let's say, I think I saw some number, like 20,000 developers worldwide, I'm sure that's an estimate and there's different degrees of their, how good they are, of course, how much experience they have, but I'm wondering now, so when a developer is interested in web three, how does Verada help? What can Verada do? What is the vision for Verada?
1: Yeah, so if you look at, let um, I me mean, go back to the Web Two story. If you look at, if you're going to build a traditional Web Two application, you need some key pieces of infrastructure. You need the ability to have some sort of compute, you know, capability. At the moment in Web Two, that's sort of provided with cloud. Infrastructure, so Amazon EC2 instances or Azure instances. You need some sort of identity in the Web2 world. That primarily is an email address these days. That's how we identify who we are. Authentication is typically passwords. There's a two factor auth now, which is becoming more popular, which is obviously important. Messaging, we have email again, plays that messaging role to a certain degree now on mobile devices, push notifications. So there's a, a whole range of pieces here that you need to build a fully featured application that's not just the compute. If you look at blockchain, today, it's primarily just that compute piece. And so what Verita does is it um, adds those missing pieces at an infrastructure level. So we have an identity layer, an authentication layer, a messaging layer. And very importantly, we have a private data storage infrastructure for personal data that is, I guess, geo-aware. So it's aware of different regions and has a whole range of technical capabilities that make it well-suited for things like healthcare data or very sensitive information. And so from a developer's perspective, we effectively provide an SDK that can effectively grant them access to all those sort of key pieces of technology that they need to build uh, more feature-rich and and powerful applications. uh, And do that in a way that can provide a a seamless user experience for users. One of the issues with adoption of blockchain is the, The user experience is quite poor today. There's different wallets and they're hard to use and there's confusion and you have to buy tokens. and There's a whole range of pieces there because it's just an early stage of the technology, which is very common. And so I think part of what our vision is to really focus on that user experience for the end user. So we've got a wallet there that brings together, it's one of the first wallets really that does crypto, data and identity and messaging. So all of those pieces all wrapped up into a, a single application for end users. And so from a developer perspective, they get access to this whole ecosystem that they can start to build feature-rich applications. And so the projects that we're currently working on behind the scenes, they, they tend to be projects that are coming from a Web 2 world and wanting to come into this Web 3 world. And we see ourselves as a real enabler there. So from a developer's perspective, it's about that user experience. How can they build faster, build better, but still unlock the benefits and the innovation that, that Web3 provides? And so I guess our vision there is to continue to enable, enable that future and improve, continue to innovate and improve that user experience for both end users uh, and developers.
0: Awesome. There's a lot of things you said there I want to touch upon. One, you mentioned private storage capabilities. So is that in reference to someone generating some information, like they're personal health data, let's say, and then they can store it in private storage geolocated. Is that based on their IP at the time that the file or data is created or modified? And I'm wondering, VPNs might alter that. And I know this is technical, but I'm just curious.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a really good question because in some ways, when you think about making a decision to store data based on IP address, obviously that information can be flaky. And as you said, your VPN, you can fake it. And in some ways, it's slightly against the ethos of self-sovereignty, of of user control. So it's more that we actually allow an individual to create multiple uh, of these decentralized identities. So the first thing is that you can have multiple. So I might have one, which is for me personally, that's very private. I might have one that's maybe a professional identity. And within those, I might have different data. So I might have my linkedin posts stored in my professional one and my personal health data in my private you know personal one and, and they're very independent first thing there is people have control over how they want to uh, shape their data and, and and how that how they want to protect it the second thing is that within those identities that we call the reader accounts a user can dictate or, or say what country that they want that data to be stored in so they can have some ownership and control of that and when oh, well. you think about when you think about individuals moving between different countries across different jurisdictions, then there's obviously some benefit there. so again, the individual having ownership and agency there. And so we think that's a really important part of that, that ethos. And if you look at, I guess, the regulatory environment as well. That this is particularly when you start to look at healthcare and the the regulation the different countries around how healthcare data is stored and who controls it and how it's accessed. We think that this is a really important. Uh, I guess technical capability that we have here compared to pretty much every other decentralized data solution, because most of the other decentralized data solutions today are distributed in that the data just gets packaged up and thrown all over the internet, and there's no real control there. And we think that's not actually empowering for users. In this particular instance, that's great for many use cases, but when it's about me, my private data, I can to have some control over where that happens to be uh, stored and the, the authentication that sits behind that. And in the future, we see a, a marketplace there around different redundancy models, different countries, different you know costs and creating this decentralized marketplace around that infrastructure.
0: Yeah. The regulatory use case you mentioned there where some countries or regions require your data be stored in a certain or their own country. Otherwise, I know it'd be against the law. So that is an important capability. So you're what you're offering is that infrastructure for developers to to make sure that any data generated is stored in the country or region where they want it to be stored. So pretty cool.
1: pretty cool. Yeah. And just to, I guess, add some color there. When we started this, we saw that as important, but there was a really tangible example a number of months ago where I was talking to a startup founder that had built some technology in Myanmar, and they were now wanting to look at decentralized healthcare there. And obviously they've had a coup in Myanmar. And one of the things that's happened is that it's a really serious risk because the people have come in to doctors facilities with a gun to the receptionist's head and said, give me all of your health records so we can go and work out who we're going to target. That's obviously a very extreme situation, but that's a a real situation in some countries. So while wow. my basis from this was really around, hey, this is important from an uh, agency perspective, in some cases, this is actually people's lives. And I think that's a really important thing that sometimes can get missed is can, when, when things are, are going well, you know, we don't think about these sorts of issues as much, but you know, when things uh, aren't so great, suddenly some of this stuff becomes super important.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. From where I'm sitting in, in Boston and the United States and maybe where you are in Australia, you might have some of the luxuries of first world sort of country, but there are many places in the world where they don't have those luxuries. And Myanmar is, I just took a look, it's 55 million people in that country. So it's not a small uh, country. And we do need to take into account that these countries are probably going to adopt blockchain before we do. Or The way I see it is it seems like they need it more than us right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting. How is that project going? Is it Myanmar.
1: That particular project is early stage. So there's still probably more of that discovery process, obviously looking at a country that because of that particular environment, it's a bit of a challenging environment, but I think there's, it's really, I think there's a lot of goodwill in that area. And there's a lot of people that are starting to think about this and we, our motto motto is wherever we can help, we'll try to help.
0: Thank you for doing that. I'm sure it's not an easy endeavor. Another thing you mentioned I wanted to bring back up is Push notifications as a like a service. I know Ethereum has a new service for push notifications. Is that going to become part of Verida, or how do you see that service? Is it yeah?
1: Yeah. So that's a good one. What? we are seeing, I think, is there's a greater awareness that there's these missing pieces of the infrastructure stack, like I touched on earlier. I think that is a great to see. I think one of the important things is that we're entering a multi-chain world. It's important that we actually start to think about how these types of pieces of infrastructure will work when there's lots of different blockchains, because that's really the world that we're starting to enter today. So that's important. The other part of what we're doing at Verita is create a framework, first and foremost. So while for I guess our launch, we have filled in some of those infrastructure gaps. We've designed it and we're using the, the decentralized identity standards, which allows us to have flexibility in terms of what are the different implementations for those different pieces of infrastructure. Taking notifications, for instance, we have a notifications framework. And so that would allow us in the future to add support for Ethereum notifications or for grand or Near notifications and have some sort of interoperability there. And so I guess that's a part of our vision long-term is how do we try and create an interoperability that's multi-chain around these different pieces of infrastructure that aren't, obviously there's a lot of talk about bridges and blockchain, interoperability between blockchain, but we're going to need that same type of interoperability in across these different parts of that Web3 infrastructure. And so we've designed our framework with that in mind. And I think we're still pretty early in this in this journey, really, at the end of the day. And so I think over the next sort of two or three years, we be really interesting to see how that space evolves and where Verita can try to add more value by um, bridging together some of that interoperability in that tech stack. When you look at tools for developers that make it easier for them and abstract away a lot of that complexity around the infrastructure that is needed <laughs> to build really good user experiences and, and save time in, in, a, in an environment, particularly with Web3 and blockchain, where, as you said, there's a very significant shortage of developers. And so anything that can help give more uplift for a project and maximize the benefit or the efficiency of those developers is super important. There's that database infrastructure that Firebase provides, which is obviously a really key part of our infrastructure.
0: That makes sense. The storage part that you mentioned, public and private storage. Very cool. So I'd like to get into Verda's technical specifications. Are you on a specific blockchain protocol, or do you operate with a specific blockchain? You have a token, VDA. What does the token do? Why is it important? I think the audience would like to know more about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So if you look at what our token does, I'll start there. So we haven't launched our token yet, but it'll be coming later this year. And we are, I guess, fundamentally very uh, big on creating a new equitable model. For the internet and we've got a really interesting opportunity here, I think, with Web three to learn from maybe some of the the mistakes that were sort of uh, came about with centralized control and others benefiting from our our information, and and sort of rethink what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And if you look at our token, what we're trying to do is create an environment that firstly rewards a user for participation, and so allows a user to sort of earn some tokens as a part of their use of this sort of new Web3 infrastructure. And that's really important because if people own their own data and own their their own infrastructure, they have to pay for it. So there needs to be a way there to try to maintain that sort of free internet model, but do it in a way that still economically makes sense. So that's the first really important point, allowing the individual to earn as they use the network, which allows them to pay for that underlying infrastructure and end up sort of at a a net neutral or depending on how much they use the the infrastructure. And are there, are those,
0: just to interrupt real quick, are those the values or how the supply and demand of those tokens are, is that still in development or being designed now, or is that something you've already finalized? Yeah.
1: So we've got a white paper coming out uh, later this month. So there'll be more detail and And insight that we can share at that point in time. But so, yeah, so there's that piece. And then if you look at the other stakeholders in terms of, I guess, what we call interactions, you've got developers. You've got developers that build applications that contribute meaningful data and and generate meaningful data for individuals and and for other users. And you've got uh, developers that build apps that share data and request data and send data and so we effectively have a model there that it helps reward developers that are contributing meaningful data that has value to individuals and to the network as a whole and so that's another key tenet of of how we've constructed um, the crypto economic model so uh, if you look at that as a whole if you there's always a entity that wants to extract value so for instance let's take a really simple example let's say ray you've got your own healthcare data and you have a a COVID test result, for instance, and I'm uh, a doctor and maybe I'm prepared to pay 5 cents or 10 cents or a dollar to access that result to, to verify something. I could pay a small amount as like an interaction fee to you. And then what would happen is you'd get a portion of that Um, A portion of that would go to the developers that built the app. And as a doctor, I'm getting some value, but it's a low cost. It's a reasonable kind of cost, like an SMS fee for for just facilitating that communication. But then everybody else in that ecosystem is getting some sort of return, which allows the infrastructure to be provided and and facilitate that that network. So at a very basic level, that's the key concept, these ideas of different interactions. And there's different types of interactions. So So within that context, that's how we're looking at the token. And then that ties back into the infrastructure. And the technology there's if we think about those interactions there's a need for a messaging um, architecture there to share data and there's some complicated pieces to that so if you think of moving data from a to b um, if we want to do it in a decentralized way and have a network of different applications it means that a user has to share their data with maybe 10 15 20 different applications and there's an interoperability problem so one of the key things that we provide is the idea of schemas that allow a type of data structure to be defined. That then means that each application knows what type of data they're going to get from a user and can have some, and there can be an emergent of standards around that data. So, in the healthcare sector, people may be, well be aware of the FHIR standard, um, the Fast Health um, Interoperability Standard. So, that is a standard that we've done some proof of concepts and support. So, in the projects that work in healthcare, um, we're facilitating individuals receiving their data in the Fire standard, storing it, and then being able to reshare that. So that's that interoperability is obviously critical for any type of new decentralized data model. The next piece that's super important in the tech stack there is the consent model. It's And, and there's, consent has a lot of different layers. You know, there's authentication, there's authorization. But you can think of saying, I'm going to give you all my data or I'm only gonna give you this one particular record. And then there's a whole spectrum of different type of consent of data. Uh, is the data consent once off or is it reoccurring? If you're my local GP, Ray, I wanna to consent to you to have all of my health data. And if I go and see another GP, I want you to also get that. So it's like a, a permanent or semi-permanent kind of connection to all of my data but perhaps I go and see a physiotherapist. I only want to share them data that relates to my knee but, and not my mental health information. One of the things we looked at early on was how do we design from the beginning to have a consent model that allows for that level of fine-grained um, data-sharing consent. And obviously in healthcare, it was one of the use cases we kept falling back to because it has all of these things and they're really important. And so we felt if we can be looking at the healthcare use cases and make sure the technology stack can make those, We felt pretty confident that we would be able to meet other, other similar use cases in different industries, whether that's in consumer sort of facing industries or insurance and things like that.
0: Interesting. Uh, I think that's a really tough problem in healthcare to manage data across and have it be interoperable across different types of record systems. I'm sure in Australia, you have actually, what is the most popular... Health record system in Australia? Do you know? Like, I know Epic is popular and Cerner is popular here.
1: There's a few different ones. Australia is sort of a small market, so it's a a bit fragmented. We have different states as well. Mm -hmm. So they tend to make their own different decisions and, and don't have much interoperability. It's a little bit controversial in Australia because several years ago, the government introduced My Health Record. And the intent there was that all of the different healthcare systems across the country would push everyone's health data to a centralised government system. And it was very controversial because um, people realised that, hey, the government's going to have one view of everyone's data and there's not a lot of trust that's sort of established over the years between governments and how they handle data. You know, breaches are quite common and misuse of data is unfortunately a, a fairly common occurrence. And it actually, there was a number of instances where there was real-world concerns that drug companies were suddenly going to be able to get access to this data without people having consent. And so a lot of people actually opted out and it became a quite a a hot political issue here during the time this was being launched. And a lot of people actually opted out. And so as a result, that project is actually not that useful because one of those things that's only useful if everyone's on, on board for the most part. And so I think that was happening as we were doing the early tech. So it was a really interesting insight into the fact that people really do want to have their own data and they do understand some of these complex issues. And the re- part of our mission, I guess, is to try and uh, educate over time to, to demonstrate, hey, this is a better way. The technology is coming and, and, and or is here in some cases. And it is a better model, better model. To come back to your original question, really, there's a lot of fragmentation in Australia. There's attempts to try and deal with that, but it's definitely a work in progress.
0: So there's no one major EHR or anything. It's been, it's fragmented. Yeah. Is, yep. Do you know if Epic and Cerner have a marketplace in Australia at all? I, I wouldn't know, but
1: I'm pretty sure Epic does. Not so much sure about Cerner.
0: Okay, so another thing that's very controversial in Australia, and I don't want to get too political, but I think people are interested, is the handling of uh, COVID overall. I know lockdowns, vaccine mandates. This can be argued back and forth. It's obviously science and the data is not 100% clear anyways but just from your perspective how do you feel the government is doing in terms of dealing with covid and its populace
1: yeah so it's a funny one because i you know australia is a bit of a bubble we're an island and so obviously connected to the internet but you only tend to get maybe hear some of this talk and chatter when you're outside of australia so i happened to actually go to miami late last year and people were asking me the same question. And I was like, is, is this a controversial thing? Like, it was not something that was talked about as much in inside Australia as, as much as it probably has been elsewhere. But I think one of the things that's interesting is because we are an island, and we're quite a small population. We could actually handle COVID a little bit differently with closing the borders. So, that's an interesting piece of information that, you know, if you're in Europe or the United States, it's just not feasible. But, you know, it was actually a feasible thing for us. What's interesting is Australia is governed by states. And so there's the federal government and then there's these different states. And probably where there's been a lot of issue is. Different states doing different things, and then the federal government wanting people to do different things, and that's caused a lot of tension. In one example, we've got Western Australia have got their borders closed to the rest of the country, and they're treating themselves as their own mini country. And they've got almost no COVID cases. They've got an economy that's, that's going without any real interruption, and there's a lot of political goodwill there in that particular state. And then you've got you know larger. Economies in the east of Australia, so Sydney and Melbourne and New South Wales, Victoria, that have a much larger population, and so a lockdown is a lot harder to achieve. And it's a to and fro between having a lockdown and not having a lockdown, and that's caused a lot of, I think, angst because people just aren't sure what's really happening. And yeah, so look, COVID everywhere is controversial, really, and I think yeah. Australia is no different. For me personally, I'm in South Australia, which is completely in the middle and separate from all of that. And where we are, we've been had minimal impact. So in some ways. I'm not qualified to talk about the, the broader sort of impact because I'm just being fortunate that we haven't had too much of an outbreak here and the things have been going fairly well.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. No, that's fair. It's good to hear. Are you a tennis fan?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Any comments on the Novak Djokovic situation?
1: Probably no comment. <laughs> I think fair it's enough. interesting. I think it I is think interesting. The, that's why it is interesting. Like the, a, it's interesting because it's a real touchpoint of populist sort of thinking around it. people. Novak's popular, right? He's a sports mm-hmm. star, he's a celebrity. Um, so it's a very high profile kind of uh, case around how Australia is handling COVID. I think that if there's anything that the court case has come out, at least from a Australian perspective, is that there's so much misunderstanding and miscommunication happening in Australia between the different regulatory bodies in terms of what, what the rules are and what's happening. In terms of Novak specifically, Um you know, he's a sports star and he has a a lot of influence and power. And obviously a lot of people want to see him play at the Australian Open. So I think um, a lot of people are going to be really pleased that he's there and that they see that as being a really a good thing for the tournament and for the integrity of trying to find the, the, the best, the, the winner of the Australian open. And then there's, I guess, probably other people that are like, no, we don't want Novak fair. in here. And so yeah. I think it'd be really interesting when he, when Novak goes out into center court for the first time and what the yeah. crowd reaction will be, particularly because the crowd will be all vaccinated like double vax, because that's a part of them getting in. So it's going to be very interesting. I think, I don't think we're at the end of that story yet.
0: Yeah. That, that's a really good point. Someone should NFT that you know, five second clip when they're booing (laughs) or whatever, (laughs) or not, maybe they'll be cheering. They won't care. We'll see. They're there for a reason, right? They're tennis
1: lovers, aren't they? Yeah. They're probably good to see them as well.
0: Edit. This recording took place before the announcement of Novik Djokovic's deportation out of Australia. The tennis star did not get to play at the Australian open. Definitely. So jumping back to Virata and some of the challenges you're facing, I'm curious, what are the biggest challenges you're facing as a company? Right now.
1: Yeah. So we touched on this before world class talent. Mm. We are most players in this space are almost in this state of always hiring and looking for for good people. But that's a problem that's industry wide. That's not something that's specific to us. As we've touched on, I guess today, there's a lot of technology. There's, I guess, a bit of a changing world order, at least in this digital sphere sphere from web two to web three. And and we have a, a rather big vision. So one of our challenges is how do we best communicate that? How do we um, communicate that vision? How do we communicate that tech? How do we get that message out to this sort of emerging cohort of developers? Uh, but then also, how do we get that message out to existing Web2 companies that may be looking into this Web3 space and are still learning? So, um, you know, one of the challenges with any new industry is that education piece. And so I think that's one of the things that we're really going to work on this year as we um, sort of come into our launch phase is continually innovating and thinking about how do we best tell that story? How do we bring people from Web 2 to Web 3 and highlight the, the benefits that, they, that are open to them there? And so then tying that together, I guess another challenge for us will be how do we build um, a community around that? Because if you look at Web 3, you look at DeFi, um, NFTs, they have communities that have formed around those new technologies where we are a lot of what we're doing is actually bringing people from this web two world to this web three world and they're not the way that those communities operate are very different crypto native communities so one of our challenges is is going to be how do we um how do we create an environment where those types of existing well-established companies or founders of you know traditional startup entrepreneurs how do that environment where they feel safe and feel comfortable and because the crypto community can be a little bit a little bit raw to other people right so there's gonna be an interesting process for us in terms of how we help shape that community and, and make sure that everyone feels welcome and can achieve what they're trying to achieve
0: yeah there's definitely a cultural shift that's taking place and there's regulations that people need to subscribe to and make sure that they're following all the rules at the same time the culture is shifting where those rules almost don't apply anymore it's kind of a gray area um very interesting times so i'm just, glad just that on that too so like, yeah,
1: yeah yeah and just on that like the, the, the rules being a little bit malleable i mean that's a really important point because a lot of the crypto DeFi space has been rewriting the rules in this sort of mm-hmm. new world and regulation is going to have an impact on that and in some ways the fact that there's been no regulation for the most part has allowed this been a bit of a wild west but it's also meant rapid innovations created some really new interesting things if you look at healthcare healthcare is incredibly regulated and so that innovation it's sort of like a you know while that regulation is incredibly important it's a bit of a bottleneck at times on innovation and covid um you know talking to projects in the healthcare space COVID broke a lot of these systems and these rules people suddenly had doctors suddenly had to work from home and they couldn't access the medical record system at the hospital so suddenly they had to just do whatever they could do so they just started doing spreadsheets and things that really aren't great and a lot of doctors I've talked to talk about COVID sort of almost throwing a spark of innovation and going okay hang on there's a whole bunch of problems here and we have to we've had to break the rules a little bit so actually we can do that a little to innovate and I think that's where healthcare is really interesting is with the advent of COVID, how, what that innovation is going to look like now, because I think there's a greater appetite for innovation, a greater understanding that's important. And in some ways, if you don't innovate, you, you actually end up with worse outcomes. So yeah, really interesting to see where healthcare innovates, not just in web three, but the web two sort of innovation as well.
0: Yeah. And I could say that at least in the United States, I do feel like regulators are listening to innovators and there is some agreement and compromise. Uh, is it happening fast enough? I don't know about that, but it's happening. And, and that's a good sign at least. But there's also a lot of pushback, not from regulators, but actually from large corporations who are making money from the status quo. I don't know if you have any comments on that or not, but it's a real problem.
1: <laughs> I think there's always, every industry has incumbents and they're obviously incentivized to to keep the status quo. And if you look at innovation historically, when those big corporations get power, they then get influenced, and they can try to retain their power by controlling some of that regulatory you know, environment that that helps them continue that uh, profit line as long as possible. But at the end of the day, innovation always wins in my opinion. At the end of the day, innovation wins out. And, and that's why this Web3 space is so exciting. It's creating this whole new opportunity of innovation across basically every industry. And obviously healthcare we see is a huge part of that.
0: Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. In this segment, I'd like to share a major announcement from my full-time employer, which changed its name from Consensus Health to Equidium Health. I am proud of the efforts that went into this rebrand and redefinition of the company. For those listeners who may not know, I began as a consultant with the company in spring of 2021, and it's been really exciting to watch us grow so quickly. It's great to see the evolution of the industry's understanding of blockchain and healthcare over time, especially in pharma. Equidium Health is a consensus mesh portfolio company focused on creating Web3, person-centered healthcare platform, and research networks. Partnerships include an alliance with Dixon Center for Military and Veterans Services, a.k.a. Vici, or the Veterans Incentivized Coordination and Integration. This type of partnership is something we like to call a data integrity and learning network or Dylan for short. Dylan's, which use a combination of public and private blockchains, tokenization, decentralized AI, and confidential computing enabled by the company's elevated compute platform are foundational to its partner-aligned strategy to make healthcare more effective, personalized, accessible, affordable, and equitable. Through a second collaboration with the Digital Health Institute for Transformation, or DHIT, Equidium Health will create a new class of municipally-scaled utilities serving geographically-defined populations via health utility grids, or HUGs, targeting the urgent needs of the underserved and vulnerable populations first. Heather Flannery, Equidium Health's founder and chief executive officer, says Equidium Health has an ambitious mission to unleash the power of trusted, responsible AI in healthcare to speed clinical innovation, drive health equity, and accelerate the transformation from paying for volume to paying for value. It's quite amazing to recall my interview with Heather on episode 58, just as she spun the company out of Consensus AG in early 2020, right as the COVID pandemic began. What a major challenge that has turned into great opportunity. I'm looking forward to great progress in healthcare in the years to come. If any listener is interested in learning more about the company or interested in collaborating with us at Equidium Health, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I would love to connect you with the team at Equidium Health. Check out the link to the press release in the show notes. And now back to our conversation with Chris Wehr, CEO of Verida. There is a partnership that Verida has with MAPay. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Just how it got started, what it's doing, and maybe some results if you have any so far?
1: Yeah, so that's, that partnership's in its infancy at this point, but there's a really exciting vision there. So MAPay is an existing company. So you can think of them as a Web2 company, so I guess case in point. And they've seen a real opportunity here around tokenization and around giving power back to the individual. Recently announced a partnership with them where Verita Technology is effectively going to be helping them achieve their sort of business goals. So that project starting in Bermuda, where effectively starting fairly small, and providing credentials to doctors and hospitals and, and basically healthcare providers and workers in the existing community health, uh, ecosystem. What's really interesting there is it's a, they're working directly with the government, and so mm-hmm. it's not only a corporation that's helping create this sort of new Web three self sovereign sort of tech environment for healthcare. It's actually the government that's seen this as an important innovation and something that they see an opportunity to take leadership on and then be able to almost export that innovation to other sort of local countries or similar countries. So while that particular project is working in Bermuda, all going well, it'd be great to see other countries in that particular region start to adopt some of that that structure. So yeah, at this point, there's a roadmap that's being worked out around credentialing There's a range of other things that will unravel in time around cross-border payments and things like that. But if you look at healthcare, there's a whole lot of different opportunities there. And the key, I think, takeaway there is that there's an established healthcare company that's driving forward that innovation into web three. And there's a, a, a specific country at the highest level that sees that opportunity and sees that as a way to a really important innovation for their own economy but also and their people, but also something that they want to take thought leadership on and, and be able to you know expand beyond their own borders.
0: Yeah. And having a very focused small population helps drive, hopefully, some success because uh, it's a little bit easier in a smaller population. And just for the audience, MAPay is a a payment services solution for healthcare. I don't actually know where they are, what markets they serve in, but at least in Bermuda, as far as I understand.
1: Yeah, so they're they're based out of um, North America. So they've okay. got an existing business there that, that provides payments and uh, the traditional kind of cloud and, and Web2 type solutions and, and using existing fiat sort of payment. But they've seen this opportunity to translate and bring that business across to Web3. And this is obviously a uh, first step in that process for them, which is super exciting
0: awesome good luck on that I'm very excited to see uh, what comes out of that and maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode I have a few more questions though before we drop the competitive landscape what does that look like for Verata at the moment who else is working on similar products
1: yeah so I think like what I touched on before the there's an emergence of players in different parts of that piece of that infrastructure story so if you look at identity for instance you've got sovereign, as a as an existing identity play, you've got Ion, which is like a decentralized identity um, network that is has come in the last year or so. You've got a Ceramic protocol, Global ID. There's a, probably a laundry list of sure. smaller identity players. and so you've got that side. On the data side, you've got things like Orbit DB, Sire, Textile, and some of a lot of those different players obviously have particular focuses which is really obviously important in the early stage but a lot of them don't necessarily integrate with this full kind of stack you think of textile orbit to be they're based on ipfs technology which as i touched on before means that the data just goes globally all over the place and you don't have that that control and agency which we saw is super important so i guess that's where we come in and are different because we're looking at this whole stack from a end-user perspective and also from a sort of a more of a macro perspective and while some of those projects are sort of competitors to us in terms of like those specific capabilities our aim longer term is that as those technologies evolve and what we're doing becomes more well known that there's a way of bringing that together and having creating that sort of interoperability framework that I touched on it's also important to note that there are some standards that are emerging in this space so there's a decentralized identity foundation diff And there's working groups there that are helping develop standards around this stuff, which we've been involved with. Obviously, those standards take a lot of time. They take years to kind of form. And so there's an interesting dynamic there between innovation that just goes forward at a rapid pace and then getting 40 companies in a room that can all agree on if it's an uppercase I or a lowercase I. But within those working groups, there's obviously a lot of different companies that are competing or working in a similar space. But what's super exciting i think about this web3 space is it's much more collaborative you know there's a lot of these library a lot of these projects are using shared libraries and have common code bases and in some ways the way that we think about competition is a little bit different it's more about okay who can we collaborate with and where can we add value rather than competing head to head in a traditional kind of business sense so for me personally that's something that's super exciting about this space is it's almost like it's not so much a competitive landscape it's people trying to solve different parts of the problems in different ways and there's a technical kind of outcome here and adoption outcome that sort of drives what becomes what actually gets adopted by the industry and that's creating a huge wave of innovation in in the web3 space particularly around this data stuff
0: the blockchain space is certainly more collaborative than the web2 space and it's the ethos behind crypto and all of that so i, I totally agree and I think it'll make things happen faster. So it's a good thing. Talk to me a little bit about your team and your culture. I'm sure you're decentralized in a way not everyone's in, our, in the same office, I'm imagining.
1: Yeah. So we're remote first distributed company just because of existing connections. There's three of us that are based here in Australia and in, in uh, Adelaide, South Australia. But yeah, we are then distributed. We've got a team member in North America, actually soon to have two, Dubai, Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Um uh, in, in Africa. Um, How so do you find very... these
0: people? How do you find them?
1: So obviously there's a lot of online remote job boards. So there's okay. those sorts of things. There's obviously things like LinkedIn, AngelList, crypto jobs boards. There's a, a range of different environments there. But at the same time, you, know, you can have access to people, but that process of finding the right people is always a challenge. And i previously run dev companies familiar with that process. And I think one of the important things is that... Uh, there's a difference between people on the resume and then when you actually work with someone. So I'm a big fan of choosing a small piece of work that is big enough to get a sense of what someone's capable of and how they communicate, but not overburden someone and pay them for that work. So we, we might actually get a piece of work and get five people to do it and, and see how that works, how they communicate with us. And we find that hands-on tells us much more than endless interviews and tests and, and process. Yeah, that's a that's an important part. And then that also that helps establish culture too because that helps establish an environment of bringing people on board Board that have been able to validate and prove to you what they're capable of as early as possible. And if you look at if you look at the, going back to that collaboration point, if you look at crypto and web three, a lot of the code's open source. So a lot of these uh, projects have open source code and people just start to contribute. And it tends to be those who start to contribute a lot can end up getting hired by um, the companies or the organizations or the DAOs that are actually funding that, that core development. And that's a part of what, our aim is as a part of building our community online is actually ending up with a process there where recruitment actually as much becomes a part of those that are actively engaging in what we're building and, and we can then bring them in closer and become an active part of what we're building.
0: Amazing. That's great. Can you tell me a bit about who your investors are? If you have any, is it, how is your startup being funded?
1: Yeah sure so we we had a seed round middle of 2021 so we ended up with uh yeah, 16 investors that were a part of our initial seed round which was awesome uh, part of that uh, and globally distributed again so everywhere from you know Asia North America Russia Australia Europe and that was and also i guess our investor makeup is a mixture of it's probably more heavily weighted on the crypto side but we also brought some people in that were probably more familiar with web two and traditional kind of business and economic models. Part of our core thesis is that we're bridging that gap between web two, web three. So it's important, I guess we have insight and, um, and uh, you know, investors that can provide advice and support us on our journey, that that can see both sides of that story. Yeah. So we've got some really fantastic investors, um, obviously. uh Investors have different focuses as well. Some are focused on DeFi, some are focused on this emerging data economy. And so we really made an effort there too as well to get investors that have a bit of a different, have different industry focuses. So we can talk to one investor and they're talking about GameFi and Guilds and DAOs and a very yeah. crypto native and seeing opportunities for our technology to be leveraging you know, those types of projects. And then we can talk to another investor in Europe where there's GDPR and there's this whole new um Focus on personally identifiable information and protecting that, and talk about use cases in healthcare and insurance and around you know consumer data. So that allows us to have some really interesting connections into other projects, but also which is really important for us when we're building technology that is foundational because we can look at those use cases and do a mental model and go, okay, our tech will work in that use case or in that region, and validate that with some of those investors.
0: Awesome, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. So. On Verrata, can you tell me a roadmap for the rest of this year and beyond? Yeah, kind sure. Kind of work things, but if you want to true
1: sure. Yeah, so the, the key thing will be, I guess, our mainnet launch. So we're currently running on a testnet. Our focus to this point has really been on the data side, solving those Web3 infrastructure pieces and probably a little bit less on um, our own token and uh, some of the blockchain connectivity. So that's our real focus in the first half of this year. So as I said, we're multi-chain. So we are prioritizing adding probably, we end up with probably three different blockchains, I guess, when we launch our mainnet and obviously our token launch as well. So having our token actually out there, allowing people to start earning our token by interacting with the network, allowing people to obviously purchase the token if they want to participate in the ecosystem that, that we're creating. and then. For us, I guess a key part of what we will achieve is this year is the introduction of this API framework. So this idea where people can claim their data from existing centralized platforms, take ownership of it and then unlock and consent that data to be opened up into this emerging Web3 space. Early on, we'll probably write some initial, we will write some connectors to popular data sources so people can claim their data. But one of our key aims is actually create a framework there where anyone can write a connector and then make that open source and make that available to people to connect their data and take ownership because we see long-term, that's how we unlock long-term value is helping people get their data and then open that data to be innovated against. And if you think of DeFi, a lot of DeFi has been helping people access capital and innovate around how that capital is, that unlocked capital is used. So we see a similar model here. If we can help people unlock their data, and then we can open it up for developers to innovate around that data in a consensual, you know, way, we see a, a huge sort of new era of um, hyper-personalization of products and services, and um, you know, preventative healthcare or proactive healthcare based on people's personal health data. There's a whole range of really interesting personalized products and services. We think that can unlock. So that's a part of our roadmap this year is getting some technical proof of concepts and key pieces in place to explore those ideas.
0: So interesting. That sounds really exciting. And I'm really curious to see uh, how the year unfolds for you and I'll be uh, rooting for you. So that's awesome. Uh, A couple of fun questions for you and then we'll wrap up. Do you have like a favorite business leader either in history or now that has really influenced you?
1: Yeah that's always a good question I think in some ways uh, probably because it's relevant to what we're doing at Veria, is Steve Jobs I mean obviously he's a go-to guy I get that but <laughs> his um, and you know he he had some some positive and negative traits I guess around his personality but I think this is <laughs> <laughs> true um, from his from a business I guess perspective and and from an influence perspective his focus on user experience was probably second to none and if you look at the history of Apple and the different waves of technology, he was always at crux point of innovation and trying to bring technology to the masses and um, bring this sort of new world, this new digital world to the, the broader sort of mass adoption. I think with what uh, I think about some of those, I guess, examples with Verita is, you know, some of the things we're trying to do around having a, a crypto wallet that's now data and unlock this new capability for people. And I think that that emphasis on user experience that almost you know, extreme focus on user experience in some ways is it was essential for Apple to become the company that they are today. And I think that a world where time is so important and now as we start to think about self-sovereignty and you know, ownership of things as being critical, uh, how we take those concepts and wrap that in a really amazing user experience that enhances what we do today is a, is a really hard challenge. And I think Steve Jobs did an incredible job to help us transition to some of those new digital worlds that didn't exist previously. Yeah. In that case, Steve. Gotcha.
0: Thanks for that. Final question. What habits do you have to stay healthy?
1: Yeah. I love running, cycling. I used to play a lot of sport. Unfortunately, had some hip issues, which... Uh, eliminated that. So, I used to love playing Australian rules football. I'm not sure if you've ever seen that, but that can be a little, little bit brutal. So, it need to protect my body these days. So, I had to stop playing that. But uh, yeah, love, love running. Running is probably my go to thing. Obviously, some weights and exercise in there, but uh, I'm very much an aerobic kind of guy. So, that's my favorite go to. And I think it's super important. Like, it's something that can slip if you're not careful. And I'm guilty of that at times. But uh, staying physically active and, and healthy is critical for being at my best and definitely learned that over the years. Great for mental health to stay healthy and active. And, you know, when you're trying to do a million things at once, um, it's important to have that downtime and, and just sort of zone out and and try and, you know, beat that PB or, or, or uh, you know, or even chase the kids down. You know, that, that's, always a, that's always a challenge as well.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that as well. I, I think we all have to find our ways to stay healthy. I think this was a really excellent conversation, Chris. So I do thank you for your time. And yeah, anything you'd like to share?
1: Well, yeah, just thanks for the opportunity, Ray. I think this is a super exciting uh, place that we're entering with Web3 and probably I'd just make a call out. I think the this is a super exciting space. There's so much innovation. There's I'm talking to projects all the time and the ideas are just amazing. And, and a lot of the limitations I think are going to come around execution. So, if there's people that are listening that are sitting on the fence, maybe they're in the Web 2 world and they're interested about this space and um, aren't sure if it's really for them or if it's actually going anywhere. I can tell you without a doubt, this is going to be really big. It's going places. And if you've got if you're sitting on the fence or you've got any interest in this space, I really encourage people to find something they're interested in and just start researching it, investigating it, and start talking to people in in these different communities because it's incredibly exciting what's happening under the hood. I mean, you only see at a service level, you only see a little bit of really what's going on. I guess I'm fortunate to talk to lots of people across the world and across different projects and there's a huge amount of momentum happening right now. So anyone out there that is curious about this space and and thinking about maybe making a leap, I encourage you to do that and and, um, prioritize that in 2022.
0: Awesome. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much, Chris Ware. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk, health warriors, and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org, and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.